Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Ask the average American to name the decisive battle of the Civil War, and you are likely to get a blank stare. Or maybe a reference to the Marvel Comics story or movie of the same name. If you're lucky, a person might mention Gettysburg. Ask someone who actually knows something about the war, and they may well instead point to Antietam. But ask Professor Donald L. Miller, and he'll tell you it was Vicksburg a position that he explains in his new book, Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy. We'll talk with Professor Miller tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This week's episode is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller, an epic you need to add to your Civil War library. Vicksburg recounts the crucial campaign that changed everything. Vicksburg analyzes General Grant's successes and failures at Vicksburg while he battled controversies and personal demons. Not just a military campaign fought across swamps, backwoods, and bluffs, Vicksburg also forced Grant into the role of liberator as he managed the slave revolts that toppled the South's economy while adding new soldiers and workers to the Union. Vicksburg is available now wherever you buy books. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina on a cold November evening, cold by North Carolina standards, might even be down to the 40s. People are busting out the parkas, getting ready for winter. It's also construction season here at the Brewster Building. They're still hammering away at the stairwell between the A and B wings of our building. They may have actually taken a break here at 7 o'clock Eastern time, Uh, 
but it goes on all through the evening hours so they can stop doing it during classes and we do appreciate that. Well, since we last talked here, the uh, college football season has continued on with my alma mater, the University of Michigan, uh, crushing our cross-state rivals, Michigan State, last Saturday. And I'm enjoying it thoroughly while I can because Ohio State looms on the horizon and they appear to be good enough to win the Super Bowl this year, much less any college games. So we'll just celebrate uh, the Wolverines' achievements while they're still having them. The uh, Pirates here at ECU play this week in a game against uh, University of Connecticut. Neither team has won a conference game this season. Somebody's got to win. This Saturday there will be some happy team. I'm certainly hoping it is the Pirates. But we're not here to talk about football. We're here to talk about Civil War history, which we do every week on the show, as you know. We won't do it next week, however. Next week is Thanksgiving here in 2019. It'll be November 27th. And so we'll take uh, that week off. But we'll come back in uh, two weeks with a discussion of the correspondence and reminiscences of the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment on duty in the Pacific Northwest during the Civil War. It's edited by James Robbins Jewell. He'll be with us on the show. And we'll finish our fall season here at Civil War Talk Radio with Kevin M. Levin on December 11th. His book, Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth, one that can um, you, you just can't beat it down. And like a zombie, these myths refuse to die. Uh, but we'll find out how and why and talk to uh, uh, Kevin. He's been on the show before. Good to have him back. Then we'll take a break for a few weeks. There will be final exams here at ECU, then the winter holidays. And we'll come back with the spring season of Jan- in January 2020. Uh, the first shows for that uh, year, that season, uh, I'll share with you. We've got uh, Cedric Deleon, who has a book called Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule. And it sounds political, not Civil War-ish, but it, the first half at least discusses the collapse of the Whigs and, uh, to a lesser extent, the Democrats leading up to the Civil War. It's a very interesting thesis on what brought the war about. And that's the part of the book we'll be talking about when he's on the show on January 8th. On the 15th, uh, James M. Scythes, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, I'll have to check with him, uh, a book called This Will Make a Man of Me, The Life and Letters of a Teenage Officer in the Civil War. We'll follow up January 22nd. Douglas Waller has a new book, Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation. And we'll turn to the other side of the Mason-Dixon line on the 29th for Chris Keller's most recent book, The Great Partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the Fate of the Confederacy. And we'll have more shows after that. I won't run them all down, but you can always find them out uh, by going to www impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps us all updated on who's coming on the show next. He does the same on the Facebook page with the same title, Impediments of War. And Mark reminds me that if all goes according to plan in the spring season, the show on April 29th of 2020 will be Civil War Talk Radio episode number 500. That just seems astounding to me. 
So we'll have to figure something appropriate to do for that. If you have ideas, send them this way. Looking ahead also, it's not too early to think about this hallowed ground coming up in May of 2020, the tour uh, put on by the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. I will be leading the May version of the tour. I think I said last week I would do the June tour. I'm not doing the June tour, as it turns out. Uh, I had that corrected for me. But I will be doing the tour in October 2020, a fall tour for the first time in a decade or more. So if you're free either in May or October of 2020, sign up for this hallowed ground with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. And of course, don't forget the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College in June of 2020. Uh, I will be on the roster there speaking uh, and be delighted to meet you there. You also get a discount if you tell the people at Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College that you're a Civil War talk radio listener. I had a listener contact me this week, and he said it works. They will actually believe you, uh, because why would you not tell the truth about something like that? The book we're discussing tonight is one you may have heard about in the opening uh, the announcements, the opening commercials, or the next commercial between segments, uh, as the publisher, Simon & Schuster, has been so kind as to sponsor uh, several episodes of the show this past month. The uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, on the other hand, is not a, a sponsor. I just endorse them because you don't need to pay me to have me tell you I think I'm a good historical tour guide, and I, I enjoy doing it, and I hope you'd enjoy coming with me. Uh, I just really believe that, so I say it without being paid. The commercials you hear on the show, such as the one for tonight's book, Vicksburg Grant's Campaign that Broke the Confederacy, are the opinions of the people paying for them, and they can say whatever they want. To get me to spontaneously say a nice thing about your products, um, well, you can always pay, and, and the, the sh- we'll put the commercial on, but to do it during the show, you actually have to write a good book, and fortunately, uh, spoiler alert, uh, that's what I'm going to say tonight. Donald L. Miller has written an excellent book uh, about the Vicksburg campaign, and that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, Professor Miller, are you there? I am. Welcome to the show. It's, I'm happy to be on, and... Uh, Good evening to you. Well, thank you. I, I'm glad you were able to take time out to come and join us here. Uh, looking at the dust jacket, the indication here is that you are a professor of history emeritus from Lafayette College, which means you're retired from teaching, but sounds like you're doing other things to keep busy. Uh, certainly writing this Vicksburg book would be one of them. Uh, what else keeps you occupied these days? Well, I'm involved heavily in some film, and um, where I had written a book called Masters of the Air about the uh, American bomber campaign against Nazi Germany, and uh, it's done pretty well. And uh, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg bought the film, and um, we're making a 10-part series on it. It's the third of a trilogy, Band of Brothers being the first, and the Pacific the second, and those were all 10-part dramatic series. And this will be a dramatic series as well, and we're set to film. Uh, we scripted it out. And we're set to film in um, in England uh, next year, uh, probably in wow. the summer. So <laughs> I've been heavily involved in that. Really exciting. That that's, that is a great yeah, thing to do. As I was yeah. reading uh, uh, 
the Vicksburg book, it occurred to me uh, there were some moments in it, the, the scene where Grant shows up for his first appointment in the war at uh, Cairo, Illinois, and he shows up uh, dressed like a civilian, and he's a brigadier general, but he doesn't look like, and he reports to a colonel who just doesn't even look up from the desk, you know, go away, if you bother right. me. So he goes to the corner, right. writes down an order, I hereby take command of this post, and hands it to the guy. And I thought, that's a movie scene. That This guy is a scriptwriter. It is a movie uh, scene. <laughs> the guy must have thought this guy dropped out from Pluto, you know, down, down, down from Pluto. Um, it, it's No one met Grant at the station. Uh, he didn't have enough money to buy, his, buy a uniform. And, you know, he stood around for about 20 minutes before he wrote out the order, didn't say a word to anyone. No one recognized him. And all of a sudden, he's the post commander <laughs> uh, on the basis of, the, of, of an order written out on the back of a bank slip. Uh, but that's the, how it starts, with Grant. Yeah. The the, uh, the the post he takes over there at Cairo, Illinois. I, I will say, on the other hand, you are not going to be getting any awards from the Chamber of Commerce of Cairo, Illinois. No, uh, no you're just going mud hole, mosquito ridden, <laughs> and, and everything else. But by the end of the by the middle of the war, it, it's the largest military installation in the American West, and everything that comes in and out of Vicksburg goes through there. Um, Admiral. David Dixon Porter runs his uh, Mississippi fleet of gunboats. Um, they're, they're, they were built in the, in the James Eads, the great Chicago boat builder. And uh, troops, uh, reinforcements, medicine, nurses, food, uh, resupplies, ammo, everything came out of Cairo. And everything came back to Cairo, too, the wounded uh, prisoners of war. So it's a gigantic military installation, one of the largest in the world by 1865. And that helps explain a question that came up as I started the book, which is the book is about the Vicksburg uh, campaign, but it begins in 1861, early 1862. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why such a deep background? well, the word to underline here is, and I try to emphasize, this is a campaign for control of the entire Mississippi Valley. Um, it's, it's, Melville saw it that way. He wrote a poem about it when the campaign opened with the Navy coming up from the Gulf uh, through the Straits below New Orleans and taking New Orleans in April 1862. And um, then they took, in quick succession, they took Baton Rouge and Natchez, but Vicksburg wouldn't surrender. Um, they bombarded the city. They were joined by the gunboat fleet, which by that time, they come all the way down and take in Memphis, and uh, and they're repulsed. I mean, they can't take the city, and uh, uh, disease breaks out among the troops. Um, it's it's epidemic, and um, Halleck, who is in Tennessee with a large army, won't send reinforcements. Uh, Sherman and Grant are chafing at the bit to get down there. And if Halleck had sent just um, one corps down there, um, it had been over. Vicksburg would have been taken because it wasn't the Citadel City that it became later in the war, just as Grant wasn't the general he became later at the war. And that's one of the reasons I also started there early on. I mean, the typical way to set this battle up, and I think it's been mythologized too much, is you have this genius general, you know, against this powerful Citadel City. And uh, that's just not the way it, it occurred. I mean, Grant learns how to fight, and you know, and he, he wins, and he occasionally loses. Um, first day at Shiloh being an example, but he's learning all the time. He's making enormous mistakes. I think if he'd been in the East, he would have been removed. Uh, there just isn't enough press coverage of the war, and Lincoln's not as attuned to what's happening in the West as he is with his generals in the East, with Halleck and 
and you know working with Halleck, you know, with when he comes to Washington, uh, with McLaren, with McClellan, and you know, and Burnside, and, and the rest of the crowd. But out there, um, the um, I, I think the kind of mistakes and the inaction, the inability to take Vicksburg after five futile attempts. Um, might have gotten him removed. And Vicksburg also doesn't become the city of consequence on the Mississippi. It isn't that at the beginning of the war. It becomes that because the other major cities and fortifications along the Mississippi, such as New Orleans and Memphis, fall. And that makes Vicksburg and the place just south of it, Port Hudson, um, the pivot points of the entire war in the West and the and the most important points in the Confederacy when Grant arrives there in uh, late 1862 and tries to take the place. Well, you you make that point. You have a, a chapter describing the fall of New Orleans. And again, uh, someone picking up the book without any Civil War background might well say, you know, I'm reading about Shiloh and Fort Donaldson. I'm reading about New Orleans. You know, I thought this was supposed to be about Vicksburg. But with that Races for me is is a point that whereas Grant is certainly a major character here, uh, his name is in the the subtitle. One of the other major characters, although they get no speaking lines in the book, is the Mississippi River itself. What I'd like to do now exactly. is take a short break. We'll come back in just a minute and lead with that question with our guest tonight. He is Professor Donald L. Miller. His new book. Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy, is our topic tonight. And I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This week's episode is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller, an epic you need to add to your Civil War library. Vicksburg recounts the crucial campaign that changed everything. Vicksburg analyzes General Grant's successes and failures at Vicksburg while he battled controversies and personal demons. Not just a military campaign fought across swamps, backwoods, and bluffs, Vicksburg also forced Grant into the role of liberator as he managed the slave revolts that toppled the South's economy while adding new soldiers and workers to the Union. Vicksburg is available now wherever you buy books. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, 
philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Donald L. Miller, author of Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy. We were talking in the first segment a little bit about Grant's introduction to the war and the setting of the book, which covers uh, the entire campaign in the Mississippi Valley from Donaldson and Shiloh to New Orleans before we even get to Vicksburg. And... uh, Don, if, if if I may go by first name, is that appropriate? Uh, yeah, sure, absolutely. And uh, and, and please call uh, I me just Jerry. Wanted to say, a, oh, okay, yeah, Jerry, go ahead. I just wanted go, to say a ahead. word again about campaign. I mean, Grant fought. You know, he, he didn't believe individual battles were going to win the Civil War. Shiloh, Antietam, Gettysburg. Um, he's operating on a campaign level and over a large geographic area, and the individual battles together amount to a campaign, but it's a, it is a campaign, and, and, and it's long, prolonged, and it's, re, it's remorseless warfare. You, you, you're fighting. You, it, this is the kind of war that Grant brought to the East. I think one of the, the big outcomes of Vicksburg, of course, it's always mentioned, is, you know, it opens in Mississippi, it splits the Confederacy, you capture an entire army. But I think an even bigger outcome is that Grant learns how to win, and he learns how to destroy the South, and by fighting... Um, property and, and, and making it a people's war, and uh, in addition to you know battle against soldiers, and so soldiers and civilians are both pulled into this conflict, and it's remorseless. It's a different kind of war. It's hard war, and uh, Grant carries that kind of war to the east, uh, sending Sheridan into Shenandoah, uh, just as he did at Vicksburg with Sherman. Sherman, I think, learns to fight at Vicksburg. Um, he's it's Grant who's the man of iron, and um, uh, Sherman when sent on some expeditions that involved pillage and things like that, drew back. And uh, he thought that would lead to ill-discipline in his army. When actually, um, Grant turned this into, eventually, into official policy. Well, the the setting for this is is the Mississippi Valley. And as you say, he will take these ideas, these concepts, uh, to the east. But but the West and the East are quite different, uh, certainly in terms of geography. And the, the river, uh, it, I, as I said in the first segment, I see the river as, as one of the major characters in the book. Uh, I do, too. Listeners, uh, so listeners, you want to get yourself a, uh, a – put the show on pause, get a map uh, from some other book if you don't have this one yet. This book has excellent maps, I will say. But you get yourself a map of the, the Mississippi Valley so you can follow along. Uh, but, Don, if you talk about the, the qualities of this river, there, there's no other like it. 
No, there isn't. And um, it has a life of its own, of course. And one of the most enjoyable things for me in the research was learning about the river and um, reading great books on the river, like Twain's, you know, excellent book on, on the Mississippi, Life on the Mississippi, and reading early settler accounts of the, you know, of the river and some of the battles they fought on the river. I mean, when you consider Farragut, I mentioned him taking the war, and he's going up that river with its mm-hmm. twists and turns, serpentine turns, and he's going up there with large, you know, uh, saltwater vessels. Um, they have a tremendously difficult time with the sandbars and the obstructions in the water, the underwater obstructions unseen. Uh, the sailors were scared out of their minds going up that river. Um, the banks are infested with gorillas, and uh, and... And, and the thing has a life of its own. Uh, you know, when Grant's in camp, the, the river's there. It, it, it overflows the levees. Um, when he had sets up his camps in Louisiana, across you know, a, a mile across from Vicksburg, and uh, and when the river overflows, it, it you know comes into the camp, and um, the, the troops have to be moved on to the levees and um, and set up their encampments there. Um, Sherman and McLaren had set up their encampments there. Um, McPherson was a little further up the river, but when the river breaks through the levee, um, it, it it also dislodges bodies that have been buried in the levee. There's no place to put men. Uh, they were buried in shallow graves, two feet deep on, on the levee. Sometimes in army blankets, sometimes in in you know in you know rickety wooden coffins. And when a crevasse broke the levee and uh, and the, the coffins often spilled into the river, bodies floated in the river. Mary Livermore, um, a, uh, an aid worker with a sanitary commission from Chicago, when she first came down to Vicksburg to, you know, bring, you know, fruit, vegetables, men were suffering from scurvy in the camps. Uh, one of the first, first sites she saw were um, dead bodies and, uh, and coffins floating in the river. Um, her friend Mary, uh, a woman named Jane Hodge from Chicago, was down there in this, one of the sanitary commission cabins, and she heard some men talking loudly along the levee, and she went out and asked them what was going on. They were actually cheering, and what they were cheering was they were bringing in a load of coffins. Now, when they died and they expected to die, um, they'd be buried with dignity. Um, but at every point, you know, the, the river plays an important part of this campaign, not just the Mississippi. The Yazoo River above Vicksburg is terrifically important. Um, Sherman fights and loses uh, an important battle there at Chickasaw Bayou. You have the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. That's how Grant gets south. He's a river warrior. I mean, working with a flag officer foot, working later with Porter. This is how he moves troops. Um, this is industrial warfare, moving in with steam. So you've got the these rivers that are the highways for the north, as you say, the the Tennessee, the Cumberland, the Mississippi. Uh, yeah, the rivers are are not static. However, one of the the stories that people are often taken by when they read about Vicksburg is the idea of instead of capturing Vicksburg, just rendering it irrelevant by digging a canal across one of the many loops in the river and diverting the Mississippi yeah. west of the city so that it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, yeah. And in fact, as, as you know, and listeners, if you've been to Vicksburg yourself, you know the, the, the main channel of the river doesn't go by the city anymore. Uh, so exactly. It, 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 it is, this morning, yeah. 
Yeah, so and it's moved. The river's moved on its own. What about those canals? Grant in his memoir says, ah, "I never really thought it was going to work." Uh, did those canals? He believed that all the water pro- all the water projects that that, that he inaugurated. Um, he, he can't find a way to get at the city. He wants to get south of the city, but that means marching through Louisiana, but Louisiana's flooded, and uh, and he won't be able to move there until April. So he's got to get in, into the city, and he, and he, you know, they they attempted this, this diversion canal that you described, but they couldn't get the river to scour the channel, and so the river flowed into this ditch, and the ditch overflowed and just flooded the camps. This was Lincoln's idea. Uh, they had tried in 62 uh, when they sent a small army contingent up with Farragut, and that failed. And the Grand Canal fails, too. Um, and uh, Grant also, I mean, the campaign has enormous breadth. I mean, in addition to the fact that it's from Cairo to, to New Orleans, a thousand miles, but 660 miles above Vicksburg is Lake Providence, and they're going to blow a, a hole in the... Uh, uh, in the levee and, and drive the river into a small lake there, Lake Providence, and have it, and then move troops across Lake Providence and through a network of rivers that extend all the way down through Louisiana and come out in the Red River, and then you would take the troops across to the Mississippi and up to Vicksburg. Well, that's over 950 miles. I mean, that failed as well. Uh, and then he tries to go into the Delta and has a number of projects in there, and his engineers told him the Delta is impenetrable. An army can't get through there, a navy can't get through there. Yet he's desperate. He takes enormous risks. Imagine this. I mean, he goes in there in a place called Steel's Bayou, um, this extremely narrow stream, you can't even call it a river, and tries to get in behind Vicksburg by going over 250 miles through the Delta. And um, he gets spotted, and he's in there with, Admiral Porter, and they need Porter's gunboats to take Vicksburg, and he has five of the best of them in there, and Sherman's in there. And um, Porter gets surrounded by a guerrilla outfit and a cavalry outfit, about 400 rebels, and um, they're ready to board Porter's boats. He sends a message to Sherman, who's just behind him, trying to get troop ships uh, through these waterways, and uh, the the trees lock together over the streams and they blow apart the upper decks of the steamers, including the chimneys. Um, Sherman gets the message from Porter, which is delivered by a slave and uh, skedaddles up there. It gets them, you know, they, they march through the swamps uh, with water up to their necks. They put candles in their rifles and to, to, to mark their way through the night and they get there just in the nick of time. Porter's already told his men, look, you know, he's, um, He's opened up the gun chest. He's passed out the muskets, and he said they're gonna. These rebels are gonna board. And when they board, it's gonna be hand-to-hand combat, and we're probably gonna lose, and we're gonna blow up the boats, and uh, and we're gonna escape through the forest if we can. I don't think any of the men expected to live to the next day. When Sherman gets there, he gets there just in the nick of time, and three officers, a fellow officers, a porter, have been shot and are lying around him as he's standing on the on the deck of his gunboat. Imagine if he had lost those gunboats, lost Porter, lost Sherman. Lincoln went crazy. I mean, he and Halleck, he, he speaks through Halleck, and Halleck says, get out of that swamp and get back on the river. That's the main stem, and this is what you have to do. But Grant can't get, you know, down below Vicksburg by going down the Mississippi until, as I said, until um, Porter agrees to run the batteries, which is chancy. Um, and... Uh, Grant can't order Porter to do it, you know, Porter's, you know, 
and at that point a rear admiral, and um, Porter Candler ran around, but they operated with complete amity, and Porter agrees to run the batteries, and all of a sudden, kind of like, you know, uh, Noah waiting for the waters to recede, they recede just at a time when Grant expedition, I mean, he sent that expedition in there and was on it for the first day and then turned it over to Sherman. They're just backing out of Steele's Bayou. And um, when Grant gets word, I mean, I think Grant's finished at that point. They've already sent a spy down, uh, Charles Dana from the War Department, to see if he's drinking or incompetent or both. And um, at that point, Grant's kind of out of options. And then Lady Fortune introduces herself, and Grant gets a message from his scouts that um, the waters are starting to recede, and there's some roads are available on top of the levees, even though entire towns, entire towns in Mississippi are complete, in Louisiana, are completely underwater. And they march. It's one of the great marches, along with Sherman's March to the Carolinas, one of the great marches of the Civil War. It took a month to get to a position where they could cross the river. So after multiple attempts, an overland attempt that's thwarted at Holly Springs, uh, land attempts that don't work, attempts to dig canals, attempts to dig diversionary waterways, attempts to go north around the city through uh, the Azu River, through Steele's Bayou, none of these work. Uh, Finally, Grant is able to get his army south of Vicksburg and on dry ground on the Mississippi side, uh, where he can now begin to launch an attack yeah. uh, but let me right. let me ask about a different element in uh, the book as we're going along you mentioned uh, it's a slave who brings an enslaved escaped uh, former slave who brings word of the the plight of the gunboats the one of the major effects that you write about throughout the book is the effect that this campaign has on the institution of slavery in Mississippi and yeah. Louisiana. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, Grant first attempts to take Mississippi and Vicksburg in um, November, December of 1862. And um, as you allude, he, he got as far as Oxford, Mississippi, and the Confederates cut his supply line. Um, Van Dorn got behind him and destroyed Holly Springs, his supply station, and Nathan Bedford Forrest destroyed his telegraph lines and railroads in Tennessee. But as he's backing out of Mississippi, and also when he went in, um, he loses control of his army. Um, A lot of these young soldiers had been on occupation duty in Tennessee for eight and nine months, and they had had enough protecting rebel property. Uh, Grant said, look, you know, if if someone avows uh, loyalty to the Union, we're going to protect their households. And um, they'd had enough of it. And... uh, there's massive plunder, not just foraging for food to feed an army, but entering houses, going into stores, destroying everything, burning plantation houses. One soldier writes back, we've had enough. And um, his father, uh, an Illinois soldier, says, you got to come home because you entered, he's from Southern Illinois, which is pro-slavery, and, and he said, you didn't enter this thing, you didn't volunteer to fight for sla- against slavery. You're fighting for the Union, come home. And the kid writes back that, no, um, every slave we take hurts them. And they've never been hurt harder than they're being hurt now. And so troops go on slave-stealing expeditions. And uh, Grant disapproves it at at the time. But eventually, by April, it's official government policy. 
And this is the dilemma. And, and by the time it's over, and I think this liberation part of it is completely missed by most historians of the Vicksburg campaign. I mean, the Emancipation Proclamation is a piece of paper unless the slaves are liberated by military action because that's what the, you know, it only frees slaves in states that are, you know, uh, have seceded from the Union. If you, you're a slave in Delaware, you're still a slave after the Emancipation Proclamation. So the Southern slaves are slave until Grant shows up in the area or on somebody's front lawn. And slaves escape, get behind Grant's lines, and once they're there, even before the proclamation, they're free forever. That's the wording of the, uh, the Confiscation Act that's passed before the proclamation. So by the time he's done, I mean, Frederick Douglass pointed it out. He said, you know, with, uh, with his pen, um, Grant helped to free the slaves, but it, the pen had to be enforced by the sword of Grant, and um, he is the liberator. In fact, when Annie Whitmire was in a nurse that was close to Julia Grant, uh, was in Vicksburg just after the surrender. She was renting a house there, and she invited Grant to dinner, and the, the slaves who had recently been freed were gathering around the house when they heard that, that Grant was arriving, and she went out and said, well, your liberator is, this isn't your liberator, your liberator is in Washington, it's, it's Father Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, and one of the slave elders said, no, it's Grant. Um, they saw it, you know, they saw it happening. And he frees, by the end of the campaign, an astonishing number of slaves, over 100,000 in one camp, military campaign. So it, it is really he, a remarkable story how, I'd say it's a remarkable story how, how the impact of this on this social institution. We're going to take another short break. Come back, talk more with our guest tonight, Don Miller. He's the author of Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. This week's episode is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy by Donald L. Miller, an epic you need to add to your Civil War library. Vicksburg recounts the crucial campaign that changed everything. Vicksburg analyzes General Grant's successes and failures at Vicksburg while he battled controversies and personal demons. Not just a military campaign fought across swamps, backwoods, and bluffs, Vicksburg also forced Grant into the role of liberator as he managed the slave revolts that toppled the South's economy while adding new soldiers and workers to the Union. Vicksburg is available now wherever you buy books. Do you understand your feline friends as well as you'd like? Why do they behave the way they do? If behavior issues get out of hand, how do you fix things? Get the answers and more when you listen to Cat Talk Radio with host Molly DeVos. We'll give you the straight facts, offer some tried and tested ideas, and alert you as to what's being done in this country and worldwide to save cats and shelter challenges. Cat Talk Radio on Voice America Variety. If you think you've seen online TV before, 
Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Donald L. Miller, author of Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy. In our first two segments, we've talked about many elements of the campaign, getting as far as Grant finally finding a way to get his army south of Vicksburg. It's a one-way trip. There's no way to go back upriver in front of the, the citadel of Vicksburg. The way I'd always read it in shorthand, Don, was that once Grant was on the eastern shore uh, in Mississippi, south of Vicksburg, he was... He had cut loose from his supply lines, and he would march inland and live off the land. But you argue he actually did have a supply line, even though he was south of, of the city. Could you? Yeah, I think I think the absence of a supply line living off the land is one of the persistent myths of the Vicksburg campaign. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a battle that's been mythologized, I think, for too long. I mean, when you get into the sources, you begin to see that what Grant established was one of the longest and most effective supply lines ever in the Civil War. It extended from, he lands in Mississippi at a place called Brunsburg and, and then takes a place called Grand Gulf and sets it up as a supply station. And he brings in supplies from way up river at Millican's Bend. They come down, he loads up um, wagons, horses, oxen onto, um, marches them down to ports along the Mississippi and Louisiana, puts them onto steamboats, takes them down to Grand Gulf, and they follow his army, these trains, these supply trains, all the way out to Jackson, Mississippi, uh, in the center, central part of the state, which is one of his objectives. He only cuts the supply line at Jackson because it's too long and it's, it's vulnerable. He had a supply line cut in the first campaign against Vicksburg in late November, December. And um, uh, he learned a little bit from that, but he doesn't live off the land from the beginning. Uh, he's, he's well supplied. And it, now, it shows his, his genius as a quartermaster as well in organizing the supply line, which he had been in, in, in Mexico. One of the uh, other, I won't call it a myth, I'll call it a controversy that, that comes up anytime people are writing about Grant, whether we're talking about Ron Chernow or Chuck Calhoun or any other recent author or traditional author for that matter, uh, the question comes up about Grant and alcohol. Uh, what is your take on Grant's relationship with alcohol in this campaign? Well, he drank throughout the campaign, and um, there's abundant evidence for that. And um, again, one of the myths is that um, 
when Julia was around, his wife, he didn't drink. And when he, you know, and he never drank in combat situations or when his army was threatened. But uh, his army was threatened at a, at a crucial point in the campaign. He worried about Joseph Jackson, uh, Joseph Johnston, and uh, who was forming an army of relief in the city of Jackson. And he worried about being caught between Pemberton, who he's trying to besiege, and Jackson behind him. And he's uh, he, he writes in his letters that it's 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 the, for him the most alarming point of the entire campaign, and he's in a crisis mode. He's calling for troops, and there's a, even a sense of alarm in his in his letters that comes through. And yet, at that point, when he gets word that Johnston might be moving toward Vicksburg, he gets on a boat and goes out to a place called Satarsha on the Yazoo River to check the situation out and to see if Johnson's in the area. And he gets roaring drunk. Now, a lot of Grant, you know, hagiographers claim it didn't happen, but it did. I mean, I've been in the, uh, a reporter who, who brought it forward was named Sylvester Cadwallader, and uh, he's often described as a fraud and an imposter. And uh, he's not. Um, in fact, he later on um, tried to write a book um, about the about the grand campaign, which was not published until the 1950s, and one reason he couldn't get it published was because he had this scene of Grant drinking in the book, and Grant was a revered national hero, and uh, so he's not sensationalizing this stuff um, by writing about the drinking incident. He was hurting his chances for publication, and it's often argued too that he wasn't even at Satarsha. And I found in the Chicago archives, uh, you know, a dispatch uh, sent from Satarsha on the very day the drinking incident that took place to Cadwallader's newspaper. He was there. Um, so I think, well, but with, with Grant, what I admire about him is his battle to fight alcohol. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. I know what that battle's like, and my dad won it, and Grant won it eventually, too. But there's reports throughout the campaign um, uh, near the, the Battle of Raymond, for example, is a very important battle on the way to Jackson. And after that battle, um, Grant goes into the tent of one of his commanders and um, says he needs a drink and takes four or five. Um, even Rollins, who defended him constantly, and Rollins, you know, was uh, an imbiber and it was Grant's moral guardian, if you will. When he defends Grant, I take apart one of the letters and, that, where he's defending Grant, and he said, well, Grant only drank on these occasions, and he mentions five of them. I mean, he's, he's, he's defeating his own purpose in the, in the letter to defend Grant. You know? But yes, he drank. Uh, he did. And he, he often succumbed in some critical moments in the campaign. Um, so briefly. He was a binge drinker. He couldn't handle his booze very well, two or three, and he's in his cups. Now, he fights, uh, you mentioned the, the battle at Raymond. Uh, people have heard of Vicksburg, but not many people other than those listening to us tonight are familiar with the series yeah. of battles in this campaign, uh, of which one, Champions Hill, is certainly the largest. But just in the interest of time, will we'll urge uh, readers, listeners to become readers, read this book. Uh, Grant wins these battles and ends up on the western, I'm sorry, on the eastern side of Vicksburg, uh, surrounding right. Pemberton's army. They're trapped. Then the true siege begins. Uh, here we have more of the mythology of Vicksburg, the idea of the Union uh, bombarding the city, the, the civilians living in caves. They're... 
you know, you, you've, you have written Masters of the Air. You've looked at 20th century strategic bombing where civilians become intentional targets. Mm-hmm. That's not the thinking yeah. during, in 1863. How does the, the bombardment of Vicksburg fit into that story? Well, I think it, it is indiscriminate bombing. It's kind of like the bombing that the British did, area bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, Porter has siege mortars out on the Mississippi on, on scows, and uh, uh, the shells are 240, 50 pounds, and they have a range of 40,000 yards. And he's bombarding the city incessantly, and Grant's hitting it from the other side. And so they're caught. The, the people of Vicksburg are caught in a circle of fire. And uh, they're hitting hospitals. Uh, they're hitting private homes. Um, they don't know where their shells are landing. And um, it, 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 it goes to the fact that it's often argued that the Civil War wasn't a total war. And I don't think it was in the sense of World War II, certainly. But one of the arguments is it wasn't a total war because civilians weren't fired on directly. But they were. They were at Petersburg later. They were at Atlanta. And they were most, and they were incessantly at Vicksburg. Now there were a lot of casualties because the fire was so inaccurate, and they did have caves to hide in. But um, I, I've read the diaries of some of the gunners and um, Porter's men, you know, who are, you know, uh, uh, there's also a Marine unit down there that's firing Parrot guns into the city. Very powerful, accurate rifled cannon, and um, they're saying things like um, they deserve it. Uh, they seceded from the Union. Uh, they sealed their own fate with this, and then they're reaping the whirlwind here. And uh, some of them are even writing back to their ministers trying to excuse what they're doing. And they do excuse it by saying just what I've said, that these secesh are, are the reason we're down here. We don't want to be here. And uh, we're trying to end, uh, we're trying to bring the country together again. And they're, they're obdurately holding on here, and, and they deserve to be bombed. So there's no apologetics on the part of the crews or Porter. Um, it ran one time when want to try to set the city on fire. The uh, the siege uses all kinds of techniques besides bombardment. They set off mines under the, yep. the Confederate lines. They use direct assaults. Eventually, uh, and and there's no spoiler here. Anyone listening to the show knows that Pemberton surrenders on July 4th, 1863. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me circle back to what you said at the beginning of the show. This is more significant than any single battle like uh, Antietam or Gettysburg. You argue in the book this is, uh, as the, the subtitle says, the campaign that broke the Confederacy. This is the decisive moment uh, of the war. What? In, how, yeah, how, do say, how can that, that be when there's two more years right. of war? You know, I mean, that's what you want to say, you know. And But the Confederacy, at, from this point on, can't win the war on the battlefield. Um, the only way they can win it is the way the Japanese tried to win it after Saipan was captured, and we put B-29s there and set up a submarine blockade. They're finished. Tojo mm-hmm. government fell, but they can bleed us and and hope we can, you know by taking casualties um, and uh, delivering casualties. I should say they can bring you know the United States to the peace table, and and that's the South strategy here too. Maybe well, and we'll win the election against Lincoln. Um, maybe, you know, the casualties that started to mount in Virginia, um, Sherman's failure to take Atlanta, all that will lead to war weariness, the kind of thing that got us out of Vietnam. Um, but that's the only way they can win. Um, I mean, their, their supplies from the West are, are, are virtually cut off. Uh, Porter controls the Mississippi. 
Um, Mississippi itself and great parts of Louisiana and Tennessee are out of the war. In fact, Reconstruction's begun in those states. There isn't another major battle fought except for Meridian, if you want to call that a major battle, um, in Mississippi for the rest of the war. So I don't think the South can win it. And, and Grant takes, as I said, this kind of remorseless campaign style, um, you know, uh, take the gloves off type of warfare, and he brings it to, to Virginia, and Sherman brings it to Georgia. Um, and there's no way they can win <laughs> at this point. Now, one, one of the other points you make is, is, is you describe the, the consequences of this campaign, and this shows up in the diaries you quote throughout of Southern civilians, is that the it, this does not break Southern morale uh Oh, that's a very important point, Jerry. It really is so important what you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, Sherman and Grant were under the illusion that uh, when Sherman, after Vicksburg, he goes to Jackson, the capital, um, he already sacked it once, and he really dis- destroys it as an industrial center and destroys most of its agricultural hinterland, the area between Vicksburg and Jackson. And he comes back and reports to Grant that these people are not only conquered, they're subdued. They're ready to sign a loyalty oath to the Union. And Grant, for a time, believes that as well. But um, by the end of the month of August, um, they're both convinced that um, the South, this is going to be a long war, and it's going to be pitiless. Um, Grant, you know, Sherman says, having chosen war, they'll get it, and they'll get it in full measure. And um, so the morale never broke. Vicksburg among civilians or soldiers. It never broke. They were worn down. They were weary. They had to surrender. 40% of the army is, is hospitalized or wounded. But um, the, um, the hatred of the Yankees and things like that, it, it exists. And, you know, I don't want to take a Confederate side here, but there's some justification for this because of the way Grant fought when he first went into Mississippi. Um, people are using words to describe the Yankees in their letters um, and diaries like Vandals and Visigoths. And when Jefferson Davis came down to Mississippi to try to rally his state, his home state, in, in late December, um, when Grant was threatening it, he used those words as well. And I think this is what the Southerners, Southern boys, certainly on the line, expected to happen to their, to their homesteads when, uh, and if the, the, the Yankees won out in Mississippi. Um, so... It, this is a tipping point in the war. It gets really vicious. And it, it, even Karl Marx, writing in the, in the in New York Tribune, calls it a, a social revolution at this point, rather than just well, a political yeah. battle. And, and you, you show that, uh, as we talked earlier, both the, the white Southern viewpoint that this is the end of their way of life if they don't win, and the black Southern viewpoint that this is indeed yeah. at last the end of their way of life and a chance for freedom. Uh, exactly. So much rides on this campaign. It's a great uh, story that you have to tell. I wish we could talk longer. We're unfortunately out of time. Our hour has flown by, as it does. But listeners, you will enjoy uh, Vicksburg Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy. Normally, when I have a week to prepare this podcast and I get a book, I select a book that's 500 pages long, I kick myself and say, why am I doing this? I've only got a week to get through it. Uh, This book flew, the pages turned themselves. It's really well written and entertaining. Uh, Maybe that's not, engaging is the word I want. Really well written and engaging. Uh, Listeners, you will uh, I think really enjoy this as I did. Uh, Again, it's Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy. uh, Written by our guest tonight, 
Don Miller. Don, thanks so much for being on the show. Jerry, thanks an awful lot. Your questions were terrific. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 